The topic given to me was disabled children in low-resource countries. I couldn't have been more delighted with this type of topic. I worked with disabled children in Africa from the 1980s until I retired in 2011. I now continue to work, continue to return to North African country about five times per year to train young doctors and care for disabled children. There are literally millions of disabled in our world today, especially in the developing world. Matthew 15, 30 and 31 were my, some of my favorite verses. It says, And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Let me guarantee you that if you're you begin a ministry, a compassionate work with the disabled. It will not be long until you have similar crowds of disabled people coming to seek your help. Disabled Village Children is a classic. It talks about not only uh, club feet and cerebral palsy and seizures and burn contractures and spina bifidas and many other topics including social issues. Uh, though it was printed in 1987, it's still a very valuable and practical book, especially working in low-resource settings. Low resources, usually we refer to that as being about money. Many of the people that we work with work, live on less than one or two dollars a day. They're low-resourced also in skills and access to care and food and education. They're also uh, low-resourced in medical expertise. Money, yes, but medical expertise for many of the disabled is something that's just unavailable in many uh, small countries. In 2010, I explained to President Kibaki, then the president of Kenya, that there was no facility for the disabled children like the one at Kajabi between Cairo, Egypt, and Cape Town, South Africa. That's about 6,000 miles. Do I really believe that? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. World Vision once sent us a patient from Senegal, which is 3,500 miles from where we were in Kenya. Now, let me remind you that the distance from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C. is about 2,660 miles. So in this economy, in this setting, this is a huge sacrifice to come those distances, and most can't. Uh, disabled people in the world. In 1996, I uh, spoke a little bit at the Urbana Conference in uh, uh, Urbana, Illinois, for InterVarsity. Uh, at that time, there were five to percent. There's estimated that five to eight percent of the population of the world was described as disabled. That equaled at that time the population of France, the total population of France, or twice the population of Canada. Disabled are disproportionately present in the developing world. In 2020, World Health Organization said that 15% of the world's population, or about a billion people, have some disability, and 200 million of those experience considerable difficulties in functioning. We do not yet have the experts to meet all of these needs. We need what I call alternatives. How could we begin to meet these needs? Well, professionals like doctors, PTs, OTs, orthopedic technologists, and social workers, fundis, which I define below as an expert in a particular area, and or just what we call practical people who are visionaries and dreamers and have a heart to train are needed. These are often those who think out of the box. Yes, to train other professionals in the care of disabled children but also to consider training people with lesser skills to help meet the need. The Huckstep Brace is way out of date. In 1950s, an Australian uh, surgeon who was then working in Kenya saw the poverty, pardon me, was now working in Uganda, saw the poverty of the average person in this country. And he put a dream into action and worked out of the box he built these braces, which are very, very crude, and I've used them. 
but they were made many people who were non-ambulatory ambulatory. About a few decades later, a Michael Steenbeek took a chance when he saw the volume of club feet that needed abduction brace for care, and he built this type of brace out of local materials. It didn't admit, didn't equal the American-made brace, but it was manufactured at a reasonable cost and it was manufactured in a developing country. Now, I'm a doodler. These doodles that you see in this paper come from probably the late 1980s or early 1990s. Uh, it was a, a dream of what we thought, what I thought that we could do to help the African setting uh, and other developing countries come up to a better level of care for their disabled. Now, Huckstep and Steenbeek were visionaries and dreamers also, and I suspect they were doodlers too. This was my doodling, and many of my dreams came true, but I cannot forget that those that did not get manifested during my lifetime. Ask yourself, ask yourself, take a little time, go off on a dark, uh, quiet corner and say, are my dreams big enough for God? Have I put a, a cap on God's abilities? What are we doing to, to make ourselves dream big enough for God? And uh, I'd say, in my case, no, they weren't big enough. No, not in southern Sudan. A more formal or informal training program, a broader program for those with spina bifida and hydrocephalus. In many other areas, my dreams weren't big enough to satisfy God. And dreaming of doodling, it's not state-of-the-art. It's but asking, what is the need? What is available? What might be practical? This we don't like to admit. What is affordable? And another one I added later, what can help meet the need of the multitude? I've sketched the parallel bars that's in this picture uh, numerous times for parents who wanted more for their kids. And while asking the above questions, remember to treat the family with dignity. These are not just patients and families but many will become your long-term friends. You may be their only advocate. My story, I began wanting to be a good general surgeon. That was my training. That was where I was comfortable or more comfortable. Then I went to, wanted to be a good, what I call a general general surgeon. Those would be who could uh, not only do C-sections, but repair vesicovaginal fistulas and work with infertile couples. They could repair a cleft lip. And then I wanted to be a re rehab surgeon. Now, the strange thing about this is I could be pretty good at the first two. But when I came to a rehab surgeon, I needed elements of orthopedics, neurosurgery, plastic surgery, pediatric urology, and many other areas. I became capable in several of these, but I was not really good at any one discipline. I needed an extra portion of what I call compassion and dreaming and hope. I needed a willingness to beg to get care for my kids, and my kids became the disabled. I needed a willingness to befriend parents and disabled children. I definitely needed to be wholeheartedly seeing myself with a passion for my life of being these children. I needed a lot more skills. That I didn't learn in medical school or in residency. I needed to recognize my kids and some of their parents as heroes. There was Daisy and Anthony and Neshurua and Annie and Gladys and Francisca and Michael Chip Churcher's mom. His mom was a prostitute, but she loved that little boy and she did anything she could to help him. And then I need to remember my Philip and many others. Now my Philip was born in a hospital in Nairobi and abandoned. He had a salmonella infection as a child and developed hydrocephalus. He's now a college graduate and a member of our family, or maybe I should say my family. Now, the atmosphere. 
in uh, 2013, the Dandy Africa Initiative was expressed. It was in the Walter E. Dandy Neurosurgical Society, a very prestigious group. At that time, they estimated that there will be about 183,917 new cases of hydrocephalus in that year alone. How they got that number, I have no idea. How factual it is, I don't know. Are there a lot of cases of hydrocephalus in Africa? Absolutely, haven't one little doubt about that. Based on Dandy's estimates, there are 19 countries also in Sub-Saharan Africa that have zero neurosurgeons. Let me elaborate on the need. The overwhelming majority of children with hydrocephalus in Sub-Saharan Africa do not receive treatment and as a result die before the age of two. Given the scarcity of neurosurgeons in the region and the economic, economic and infrastructure constraints, the timely treatment of these infants presents an enormous challenge. So the overwhelming majority die before the age of two. Got it? They're an enormous challenge. Got it? The, ch the child here treated with all the scars in his head was initially treated with what was available in her community, which was a burning procedure, and at the cost that was reasonable for them. But some of these children, I don't know exactly what percentage, some of them can come out and be college graduates like my Philip. You get the picture? 184,000 new cases of hydrocephalus per year, congenital hydrocephalus, one in a thousand births, infectious hydrocephalus, two to three in a thousand births, the overwhelming majority die before they are two. The magnitude of the need is breathtaking. So a surgeon or a neurosurgeon, a general surgeon, a family practitioner, or a skilled physician's assistant, if he did one procedure per day for hydrocephalus for 365 days every day of the year, we would need 501 surgical types surgical types, note that, to care for these new cases of hydrocephalus that the Dandy Initiative is considering. Someone with good judgment and good hands that could put in a shunt or maybe something more. In 50 countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, there are 251 neurosurgeons, or half of the 501 needed. In 2013, of the 251 neurosurgeons in Sub-Saharan Africa, 125 were in South Africa and 34 were in Nigeria. Again, 19 countries had no neurosurgeon. In the other 48 countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, there were 92 neurosurgeons. That is, one per 8,695,000. You can find more details in this uh, reference to the web. But anyhow, it just says that if you look it up in the United States, there's about one neurosurgeon per 61,000 people. In Africa, the load is 142 times the load in the United States. There are deficiencies in care of those with hydrocephalus and spina bifida needing surgery and therapy, and similar deficiencies in providing care for club foot, burn contractures, hypospadias, cerebral palsy, and other disabilities. Ponsetti revolutionized the care of the outcome of many children with, high, with club feet, yet many rural children still have difficulty accessing adequate care. Steenbeek helped in the care of club feet with his abduction brace. The Ponsetti method of caring for club feet is state-of-the-art. Outcomes have been surprisingly good. However, many families cannot bring their children long distances every one to two weeks for interval manipulations and casting. In those cases, it may be best to operate upon these children before they are two and when their tissues are still soft. What I'd like to propose is that we need to be prepared to compromise your, the methods that, according to the situation in which you find yourself. Disabled, disabled locally, it's where we began, 
what came into the hospital doors were what we first started seeing, then in refugee camps, and then in closed countries and in unreached people groups. Then we started having patients come from places like Senegal, Uganda, Sudan, Somalia, Tanzania, Mozambique, the Comoro Islands, and other places. These were patients that were of the few they could afford to come that far. We began with 15 clinics in Kenya. We took them around the country so that we could uh, be near the patient and they wouldn't have to spend a lot of money coming for evaluation. And then we went to refugee camps and then to closed countries and then to unreached people groups. Your care for the disabled may in some circumstances be a door opener. Not many people come knocking on that door and say, can I help you with your disabled children? But it may be the door opener. Your skills may get you into countries that others might not get into. In 2006, uh, two other doctors and I went to a northern African country. We were told by our mission leaders that there was not one known Christian in the country. That's probably true. They said even expats. We thought we would go a little bit making it a covert trip. As it turned out, as we arrived in the pediatric ward, the, the room was wall-to-wall -wall patients and, and their families. And they said, how did they know to come? And they said, oh, we announced you over BBC. The first day I was operating there, a young lady came up behind me, a medical student, and said, uh, I've never met a Christian. She was a medical student. She, in her lifetime in school and all, had never met a Christian. I lived with those words, words convicting me for the past 14 years and pushing me back to that country. And that's where I continue to go. Can we hope to make more effective use of practical technology and more efficiently develop the medical personnel available? Two young ladies first worked with me while medical students then during the internship year, and now for a total of 14 years. They now do most of the surgical procedures I used to do. Beyond internship, they've had no formal training, and their internship training was probably not very formal either. Now, there's something called apprenticeship. <clears throat> Apprenticeships sh should be looked at as at apprentice-type learning for more medical and practical people with intermediate skills who might be trained and established to meet more of the needs. Remember, hydrocephalus dandy thought there was a nearly 184,000 new cases each year. What could a good technician, if you want to use the word, do to help, hopefully with backup? Let me turn from medicine to the spiritual. Mercy came to me in 2005 wanting to be our chaplain. And uh, she was in her 50s at the time, and she came on, and she, a little bit later she came and said, Dick, could we train some disciplers? And I said, sure, what is, what are, what's a discipler? And they said, uh, it's somebody who can carry our teaching into the village, our spiritual teaching, but also our medical teaching, who can help identify disabled and help get them to our care. Mercy's the Bethany Kids Chaplain and continues to be. She initiated the training of disciples, and now she has trained over 500 of these volunteers. She and her team and our pediatric staff have seen many come to the Lord. In fact, in a 10-year period, they saw 38,000 people come to the Lord. Now, let me just say that this is not just a playground for disabled kids, but also a place to meet Jesus. It's not just a playground. It's not just a hospital. It's not just a, for disabled kids, but it's a place to meet Jesus. And that's why we're there. Do you have any questions? Hi. It's such a privilege to present to you with Dr. Dick Bransford. He's told you a little about, about himself and his passion for people with disabilities. And I'd like to add a little bit. I think I'll be able to connect you to resources and an example of how to get started. I was teaching at Letourneau University and got involved in a research project.
to do with the function of wheelchairs called the Wheels Project, and we partnered with Bethany Kids at Joytown. And that led to the formation of the Assistive Technology Catalyst Project. There'll be another slide at the end that tells you how to get a hold of me if I can help you. As you know, disability is one of the fastest growing global health needs. It's because of a lot of different reasons, but one of the biggest is the aging population and the global increase in diabetes. Also, uh, more children are being kept alive rather than being exposed to die. The modern traffic conditions in a lot of the countries where you all work are, of course, prone to creating trauma. I started with a research project. I had grown up in Kenya and I had seen the basically junk for Jesus phenomenon. People would send, really well-intentioned people would send over stuff that did not work. So I cared passionately whether things actually functioned in the field. And I got involved in a project to look at wheelchair function and we ended up developing and validating four different research tools. The, is it clinically suitable for the user? Is it broken? Is the wheelchair user satisfied? Does it roll well? If you want to know more about their, those, they're available open source on our website. But that's not really the topic of this conversation. It just was letting you know how I got involved in this. I really wanted to address the problem of inappropriate wheelchair distribution where wheelchairs were just handed out or people gave away whatever they had. There was no intentional focus on providing appropriate wheelchairs that actually worked for the people. Some of them were actually dangerous, as you can see here, it's a pressure ulcer. This little girl is going to have musculoskeletal problems more than she would need to. She has spina bifida, she has a good upper body, she could self-propel, but as you can see she can't really reach the wheels and the position her legs are in. I've seen kids actually get stuck in that position from sitting like that all the time. We traveled with experienced therapists and right from the beginning, I wanted to facilitate appropriate provision, so we poured into the local teams. Part of what we did was seminars and serving as mentors and accessing a wheelchair supply for our studies, which weren't huge, but it was a start. It was a win-win situation. Bethany Kids got some wheelchairs. The, my students got to travel and get published, and the wheelchair organizations got feedback. In the process, I ended up joining the research community involved in assistive technology provision. This is a picture from um, the World Health Organization stakeholders meeting in Bangalore, India. And I realized there was a lot of resources developing, both financial and training and guidelines and so on, that were aimed at governments. And this really bothered me because I knew often the best partners would be the large, stable, faith-based health providers, the mission hospitals. These are large resources. For example, AT Scale has all of these different uh, funding partners, UK Aid, USAID, World Health, um, UN, UNICEF, Clinton Health Initiative, and so on. And they have an enormous amount of resources, and their goal is to provide assistive technology to everyone who needs it by the year 2030. I'm not sure they'll succeed, but they're making a crack at it, but they're working with governments. My heart is that this, these kind of resources will pour through people like you, where they're not just being helped with assistive technology, they're also having their spiritual pain addressed, because many people who have problems with disability are told they are cursed or did something wrong and it raises spiritual questions. These people are open to hearing of the good news. As we saw with what Jesus did, he reached out to people that others undervalued. I started advocating with the population of people who are involved in planning how to spend these resources. And at the uh, Global Rehabilitation and Assistive Technology Consultation in Geneva, I was able to present on the key importance of including faith-based health providers in a strategy for the development of appropriate assistive technology services around the globe. And it was quite well received. But of course, that needs to come from two sides. If they're ready to work with faith-based health providers, faith-based health providers need to be ready to work in that field. And so many times that hasn't been the case, partly because the medical directors are surgeons, don't know much about rehab, everybody's overspent their budget already, people are busy, and unlike Jesus' ministry, in a lot of our 
mission hospitals, people with disabilities just kind of fall off the radar. And now there's these resources available. I would like to really challenge you to walk in the footsteps of Jesus and open your heart and hands. And you're like, well, how do we do that? I'd like to show you that the need is felt. Here's a short video from Will Copeland, the neurosurgeon at Tenwick Hospital. Yeah, hey, I'm Will Copeland, a neurosurgeon here at Tenwick. So uh, today is Monday, it's our big clinic day. And our first two patients so far this morning both will need wheelchairs. One is a three-month-old little boy who we fixed a, a myelomeningocele or spina bifida on his back uh, three months ago. And of course, as he grows, he'll eventually need a wheelchair. The second one was a 10-year-old boy who has a lesion in his spine causing him to be paraplegic. So these wheelchairs are so important to our patients and uh, we're grateful for any assistance we can have. What do you think will happen if they don't get a wheelchair? It's difficult to say, but often it can be um, it can be a death sentence here in Kenya. The children can develop problems with uh, their skin and they get uh, ulcers and breakdown from that, uh, which can uh, lead to infection and again, ultimately, uh, even death. Uh, yeah. So why? Why leave people isolated and in pain when hope and resources are available? There are real barriers. Training and mentorship, we need a local advocate, the co cost of wheelchairs and AT, space, so how does one start in a way that's not overwhelming? So I'm gonna give you an example from Bethany Kids in Kenya. We began to bring experts in the field to Joytown with the research project to do short seminars and encourage the local staff. So it began to build an understanding that someone working with wheelchairs is valued 
and begin to build into them an understanding of what was needed. Because uh, if you hire someone with a two-year certificate program in OT or PT, assistive occupational therapy or physical therapy, they haven't necessarily had much training. If you hire a chaplain, they may not have examined or thought through, are people with disabilities actually cursed? Are they kind of icky, shameful? Um, unless we address those things with training, things can't change very well. A business plan was put into place with a gradual scale-up for staff and space to work, and they were able to come up with a plan on how to pay the staff by charging a small amount for uh, wheelchair measurement and provision. Um, now the government of Kenya is actually providing funds toward wheelchair provision in some counties, and there's an opportunity to work with the government. This is true in a lot of places because AT scale is aggressively going after governments to ask them to do that. They were able to get wheelchairs from Free Wheelchair Mission. Free Wheelchair Mission sends what they call um, basic level wheelchairs free to port. The, not the plastic bucket chairs, those ones can do real harm, but their folding Gen 2 and 3 wheelchairs are adequate for people with good upper body and from te uh, sort of teens and upward. They're not pediatric. So that's a start. So now they have a beginning of a wheelchair supply. They uh, began working with Beeline for pediatric and complex seating wheelchairs. Um, that is still... The funding for that is still in process, but wheelchairs have arrived there several times. And it began to make an impact in life. Here's a, I just want to keep focusing back on real people here. And here is Kate, a mom of a child with disability, telling a little bit about her story. Disability in Kenya, it was like, it's witchcraft. It's all these sort of things, you know, you're cursed. You have to be told that maybe when you are pregnant, you maybe looked at somebody else who was disabled and you know, you laughed. They usually say, God has punished you for something. I was so desperate, but I had looked for a special seat for four years. So actually when I came, it was through a friend that I learned that there is a place called Kijabe and they were that patient and they advised me and they were really good. They really gave me sound advice on how to live with that child. And so the journey started there. Okay. I don't think where I am right now, if it was not for God, I'll be the most craziest woman around. Don't ever be cheated, God is love. Yes, because he gave his only begotten son because of Tatiana and you. So I remember my first time that I, I really talked to God, you know, this is one-on-one, -on -one, me and you. I told God, I've accepted it. This is your child you've given me. I want you to be called a mother. You've, you've given me that promise. I'm now called Mama Tatiana. Now the journey has started. Let me, let, let me never lack. Let me never have that much knowledge, but give me wisdom to live every day. Um, Bethany Kids also was able to partner with CLASP. It's a wheelchair provider funded by USAID. So they had more types of wheelchairs. They advertised for an OT to mentor local teams. And this is Luke McCulley. Uh, I presented with him, at, if you look at the uh, slide for the great consultation, you can see I presented with him there. And he has a greater depth of training and he is able to mentor the local teams. As you can see, when Kate expressed the stress and pain, um, and when people with disabilities express the pain, they often don't begin with physical pain. This is a slide um, that Dr. Bob Carter presented at CMDE. Um, and as you can see, there's physical, emotional, spiritual, and psychosocial pain. And we heard about all four types of pain, but often even for all of them, the spiritual pain is of prime concern. Is my child cursed? Did I do something wrong? Whose fault is this? And they're very open. And the whole community is open because it's like, is our family member ashamed to our family? What do we do? They tied into the great uh, program from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine 
that initiates parent support groups and training on how to feed and care for children. So many of them, like this little boy here, are so much more disabled than they need to be. He was essentially stuck in that position because his parents didn't know to stretch him out. So when it was time to go to school, he could hardly even sit in a wheelchair when there was one available. And that's avoidable. And Ubuntu can teach those kind of basic skills, getting to know cerebral palsy. Here's a little sem uh, video about a seminar we did with the people from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. So with this seminar, I'm able to realize different types of techniques that if my child is supposed to be resting, I'm supposed to be lying her on this side. If my child needs the head control, I need to put her on this position. If my child maybe cannot be able to do the other one, you can substitute with this other one. And something else that also that is the nutrition that these kids are supposed to be having, which are the energy foods, which are the protective foods, and which other category do you need to give your child? So with the guidelines that I'm being given here, if this parent will come to me and ask me, oh, my child can eat well, but I need the positioning, I'll be able to, to tell her, do like this or don't do like this. So I, I will install that hope in that parent. I want to empower 10 more women. It starts with one, goes to 10. 10, they train another 10, another 10, another 10. They are tying into the great Johnny and Friends materials for understanding the nature and doctrine of disability and suffering. And right now there's a conversation going on of perhaps working with Moffitt to have this taught to local pastors or different denominations in Kenya as well. This, we found, opens doors to transform communities. Again, back to real life people. As you can see, this uh, young woman here received a wheelchair. Um, and it has impacted her whole extended family. This young man here had a wheelchair at school, but nothing that could fold, so his mother had to carry him back and forth to school. Here we have an OT that's part of the team in Kenya, training activities of daily life, helping the child to be part of the family. It really transforms communities. Here is a wheelchair provision happening in a rural area associated with Tenwick Hospital. This is Solomon Rapp, a therapist at Tenwick Hospital working with Luke McCulley. So a hub of excellence impacts other um, medical, other people involved in wheelchair provision as well. And as you can see, all of these children are noticing this child is not to be made fun of. He is valued by someone. And here you have another mother waiting with a disabled child on her back for a wheelchair. If you have questions, um, please type them in <laughs> or feel free to contact me. And I'm looking forward to connecting and collaborating with you to facilitate what you do. Thank you very much for your time and attention.